Do you love narrative podcasts but don't want to listen to ads? Cast Media is now offering ad-free listening with a Cast subscription, Cast Plus. You get ad-free access to not only Scoundrel, History's Forgotten Villains, but also great shows like Opportunist, Vigilante, Good Cult, Nighty Night, Media Circus, and their new show, Lost in Panama. Along with ad-free listening, Cast Plus also includes bonus episodes and inside looks into making the shows. And this is just for Cast Plus subscribers. Find out more by going to castmedia.com slash castplus. That's castmedia.com slash K-A-S-T-P-L-U-S. Rochester, New York, January 7th, 1920. Edward Neep smokes alone in the break room of the Gleason Works, where he's employed as a machinist. He takes one last sip of coffee and stubs out his cigarette before he looks to the clock on the wall. Here, in this empty, cold break room, time might as well be nothing. Every minute feels like a millisecond, every second a nanosecond. There's no time to cherish these in-between moments before he's rushed back to the floor where, somehow, his workday stretches to eternity. Through the large windows that separate the break room from the manager's office, Neep catches a man in a dark woolen overcoat, speaking with his foreman. The man in the overcoat flashes something in his palm to the foreman, but Neep thinks nothing of it. He turns his attention to picking at the dirt beneath his nails. Neep is a slight man, just over five feet, built with the buoyancy of a jockey and arched brows that obscure the forest green of his eyes. And while his days feel interminable, there's an energy coursing through his body that suits him well for the demands of being a machinist. When Neep looks up from his nails, the man in the overcoat stands over him. Neep didn't hear him come in. Edward Neep, the man asks. Edward stuffs both hands in his pockets. Who's asking? It's Detective Arnold from Rochester Police, and he takes a step closer. Edward can feel the coarseness of the man's overcoat, lifting the hairs of his arms with a pull of static electricity. The detective is asking if he knows anyone by the name Pearl Odell. Neep's eyes go a little wide. He shifts his weight, and on the inside, he feels his arteries stretch with his rising blood pressure. I'm guessing you already know the answer to that. Otherwise, why ask? And just like that, it's time to go. Detective Arnold handcuffs Neep and leads him to an unmarked squad car outside. When they pass the foreman, he takes notice. In fact, he'll later remark that Arnold struck him as a strange-looking cop. Like Neep, he's slight and thin, moves with the same bounciness. The two could have been confused for brothers, if not for Arnold's more youthful face and gentle, almost childlike demeanor. In the early morning of January 8th, 1920, the next day, a train rounds the bend on its way to Rochester, New York. When it passes through the iron curves of Ballantyne Bridge and over a culvert, the brakeman sticks his head out the window for some fresh air. It's a cold, gray, upstate New York morning. The air sharp and sliced by the winds coming off of Lake Ontario. And when the brakeman takes it in, something in the ditch below catches his eye. It's gone in an instant, and the train rumbles by but it's etched in his mind forever. A bruised mass, shaped like a body, its flesh torn and frozen by the night before, resting in the snow-misted dirt, or 
maybe it wasn't there. The brakeman isn't sure. So he reports it to the police when he arrives in Rochester, just to be safe. Later that day, Sheriff Andrew Weedman and several of his men investigate. And what they find shakes even this seasoned veteran of the department. The brakeman's instincts were right. It's a body there in the culvert. The sight even more grotesque up close. The corpse is a man in his underwear. And in the later autopsy, the coroner catalogs a frightening number of wounds. Crushed skull, broken jaw, both ears torn to pieces, six stab wounds at the base of the skull, two more by the spinal column, another eight stab wounds in the left side of his chest, collapsed lung, broken rib, and a large stab wound across the abdomen that leaves the intestines exposed and dangling. Police are only able to identify the victim as Edward Neep when they find his work clothes, the same he was wearing when arrested by Detective Arnold the previous day, and wallet stuffed in a heap at the base of a nearby tree. It is, by far, the worst crime Sheriff Andrew has ever seen, to the point that he says, I pray to God every day that I never see anything like it again. Two sets of footprints encircle and lead away from the body of Edward Neep. One, a pair of men's loafers. The other, a pair of stiletto heels. And that's just the beginning of ample evidence left behind by the murderers. And within days, two arrests are made. One is the so-called Detective Arnold, who had arrested Neep at the Gleason Works on January 7th. Detective Arnold, it turns out, is no detective at all. The local man by the name of James O'Dell. He's a supposedly upstanding member of the community, and his arrest shocks his friends and co-workers. The other suspect is Pearl Beaver Odell, James' new wife of just several months. And it so happens, Neep's former girlfriend, lover, and maybe ex-fiancé. The exact motive for the murder is a bit of a mystery, however. Both James and Pearl will blame the other for the murder in their individual trials later in the year. The salacious details of the gruesome murder spread like a viral meme through the national newspapers. The story is a sensation, and one day, even future president Franklin Delano Roosevelt becomes embroiled in it. The papers, while they never question James' involvement, become obsessed with Pearl O'Dell. Is she an innocent victim, forced to murder an old flame by her jealous husband? Or is she a criminal mastermind who tortured her husband until he killed in a tormented fit? Depends on who you ask, it seems. The local Rochester paper paints Pearl O'Dell as a conniving demon who possessed her husband with a homicidal rage. The real victim, the paper suggests, is James O'Dell, who was driven to kill Neep by a diabolical Pearl O'Dell. Other papers, though, suggest that Pearl O'Dell is simply an innocent victim, a passive bystander swept away by the violent machinations of her husband James and his compulsive obsession with her ex-lover, Edward Neep. Or maybe Pearl O'Dell and James O'Dell collaborated together in an act of extrajudicial and retroactive self-defense. Maybe Edward Neep is no victim at all, but a monster himself who had inflicted great harm on Pearl and James. Pearl O'Dell will put up murder defense that she was criminally wronged by victim, a headline reads. Not only, one journalist reports, did Mr. Neep seek to break Pearl's sense of modesty and lead her into a life of shame, but he was guilty of unnatural crimes of the most revolting nature. 
There are many different Pearl O'Dells to many different journalists, investigators, and public figures. And no matter where they land in their interpretation of her, Pearl the cruel, diabolical mastermind, Pearl the passive victim, Pearl the vigilante, there's a united fixation on changing roles and expectation in the 20th century. It's January 1920, and the 19th Amendment, guaranteeing women the right to vote, will be ratified in a matter of months. Women have successfully organized for better and more equal rights. The change has been in the air for years, and it has met with both celebration and, by its detractors, fears of moral decay. Each account, then, of Pearl O'Dell and the murder of Edward Neep becomes tinged with both aspirations and anxieties for how womanhood might be transformed in a more modern 20th century. Or, as one editor writes in response to the Pearl O'Dell case, in the last decade, while woman has been fighting for the ballot in a new political life, she has also been pushing her claim to a freer and finer emotional life. She has grown tired of being exploited for love, either inside or outside of the protective wall of matrimony. Her battle for the ballot has been only a part of the great war for release from sex slavery. In this sense, this is not just the story of Pearl O'Dell alone. It is the story of her time, of a world in transition, of the dreams and hopes for a better, more just century, and the intense, paranoid backlash to the women's suffrage movement and push for increased civil rights. So, who is Pearl O'Dell? Is she a criminal mastermind who pretends the decline of society in the modern era? Did she kill because a shift in culture, as many in her time will claim, gave her license to murder? Is she a hapless victim caught in the jealous rivalry of two lovers? Or is her story one of a courageous warrior bringing justice to the monstrous man who tormented her? The answer, as with most things, is not so easy or tidy. It's complicated. And all you need to know for now is Pearl O'Dell is in a lot of trouble. History happened. The good, bad, the ugly. This is the underside of history, the lesser-known pieces lost in the bigger picture of time. From the creators of Myths and Legends and from cast media, this is Scoundrel, history's forgotten villains. We're Jason and Carissa Weiser. Join us every episode as we explore the dark, quirky, and bizarre history that you might not have heard before, but really should. Hey everyone, Jason and Carissa here. If you're enjoying Scoundrel, History's Forgotten Villains, we would really appreciate it if you left us a rating and review. Also, we'd love your feedback. Go to castmedia.com slash scoundrelfeedback and answer our survey. Thanks. You can listen to Scoundrel, History's Forgotten Villains, ad-free on Amazon Music. Getting the help you need doesn't have to be a challenge anymore. Not when Talkspace is so convenient and accessible. And yes, you can get mental health care with or without insurance to fit your need. We can't stress enough how important it is to prioritize your mental health and wellness every day. And when you work on yourself, you'll start to see and feel positive changes in all areas of your life. I like the long-term effects of therapy, too. Having the tools to deal with challenges as they arise, strengthening your relationships, and having a more optimistic outlook on life. Those are all good things. There's no better time to invest in yourself than right now, even if nothing big's going on. From a stress management perspective alone, working with a licensed therapist has made a big difference. Getting started is the most important piece, and big or small, 
Talkspace is there to help with any specific challenges you might face. Anxiety, depression, relationships, thousands of licensed therapists are waiting and trained in over 40 specialties. It's the number one online therapy platform for a reason. As a listener of this podcast, you'll get $100 off of your first month with Talkspace when you go to Talkspace.com and use code SCOUNDREL. To match with a licensed therapist today, go to Talkspace.com and use the code SCOUNDREL to get $100 off of your first month and show your support for the show. That's scoundrel and talkspace.com. Pearl O'Dell is born Pearl Beaver at the beginning of the 20th century in Pennsylvania. Her early life, as one newspaper puts it, quote, was anything but a bed of roses. Her mother and father divorce when she's a young child. Neither parent can care for her, and she spends much of her youth bouncing around Pennsylvania from family member to family member, acquaintance to acquaintance. When he's interviewed by the press after his daughter's arrest, Pearl's father recalls little of his daughter's itinerant youth. After the divorce, her father says, Pearl went to live at the home of John McCarroll of Collie, Pennsylvania. Pearl lived there for a time. I don't really remember just how long. Then she went to live with her older sister, Mrs. Ava Nivauer. After that, I can't tell every place she's lived, is her father's response. When Pearl is an adolescent, alone and unmoored, from a broken home, her father loses track of her whereabouts and makes no effort to find her, contact her, or mend their broken bond until her arrest in 1920. When she's 14, Pearl works on a farm in rural Pennsylvania that belongs to a distant cousin. Her days there are long and monotonous, full of chores and labors. She's awake every day pre-dawn. Summers are full of sweat, humidity, and backache. Winters, always cold with dry skin and numbness in her fingers and toes. Some days, she can barely milk the cows in the frigid barn for lack of feeling in her hands. She also has no friends, which makes all of it even worse. Where there should be social bonds, there are none. Even the cousin who owns the farm has brought her in for free labor, not out of family fidelity. Her only joy is her frequent dates with the local boys. One day, Pearl is late for her chores. Her cousin waits for her in the kitchen, sipping a cup of coffee, his ears tilted up to the ceiling, waiting for the sounds of her footsteps above. The old wood above at last creaks, and the cousin goes rigid. He waits, and when Pearl appears in the doorway, cardboard suitcase in hand, he looks right through her. You got any explaining you want to do? The cousin asks. Pearl stands as tall as she can and tells him that she's leaving. It takes all her concentration to overcome the fear inside. She's going far away, getting married. Married? You're 14 years old and, frankly, worthless. Nobody's marrying you. Pearl leaves without another word, and she's gone for about a year. Where to? No one really knows, because she never mentions it again. A year later, she returns to the farm. She enters the decrepit farmhouse like she'd been gone on a short errand and not missing for a year, and goes straight to work on her chores. I knew you'd be back, her cousin says. I mean, who wouldn't grow tired of you? Pearl toils for another year on the farm, working every day and every night under the judging gaze of her cousin. When she's 16, Pearl's back living with her sister, Ava. She gets a job working the till at a general store. It's not much, but it's not the farm, and it keeps her busy and a little independent. On a hot summer day, the screen door of the general store squeaks open, 
And when the little bell on the hinge rings, Pearl looks up and sees a man enter. He's short, maybe her height, and both boyish and old-looking. He doesn't look like he could grow a beard, but there are little tinges of gray on the fringes of his hair, and he slithers on over to the till with an easy confidence. He buys a bottle of Coke, and when Pearl sets it down before him, and the little beads of sweat slide off the glass and onto the counter, he leans in close. He's asking her name. Eddie, meet Pearl. Pearl, Eddie. It's a volcanic rush of new attraction, fueled by the allure of strangers meeting for the first time. There's something electric about Eddie, too, that Pearl likes. He takes her on a date that evening. They get ice cream and take a walk along the river. He reaches for her hand and flutters his fingers against hers. And when their hands at last interlock, Pearl hears the rhythm of her heartbeat in time with the potential of a new, authentic chance at real love. He's the first, in what she can remember, to really desire her company. After that, they continue to date. Picnics, dinners, the silent movie theater the next town over, and long walks from midday to dusk. Neep is older. He's in his 20s, and Pearl is just 16. But he seems to care for her, and she likes him, so it continues. Then, one fall day, Pearl returns home from work to her sister's house and hears two muffled voices coming from inside. Through a cracked window, she barely makes them out. Two male voices. The voices of her brother-in-law and Eddie. She's no good, says her brother-in-law. Never has been. Probably never will be. Did she tell you she left for a whole year? Just disappeared. Lord knows where she got to when she was gone. She won't say, but we know it was man after man. Eddie makes a joke, and they both laugh. That night, Neep invites Pearl over to his apartment. They sit on a porch swing with their legs tied together and a woolen blanket keeping them warm. He's bought her some nice chocolates. They're delicious, and when Pearl offers to share, Eddie smiles but declines. There's something special just for her. As they talk, a question surfaces. What do you want? Neep asks. Like, if you could have anything, what would you want? It's a home. A real home. That's what Pearl wants. With a family of her own and someone to belong to together. Neep can see that future coming to be. Them. Together. It could happen. Pearl won't remember much more of that night. She'll remember feeling dizzy and lightheaded after the chocolates. She'll remember Neep leading her to the bedroom, her head spinning like she's floating in a tub of water. And the next thing she'll remember is waking up alone in Neep's bed. In the morning, Neep is gone. The drawers from his dresser have been pulled open, and there are clothes scattered about. The front door has been left open, and no other signs of him remain. And again as she has felt so many times before and after in her life, Pearl feels alone and betrayed, the staggering weight of her isolation ringing in her mind, like the echoing aftershocks of an orchestra hitting a crescendo out of tune. When Pearl returns home that afternoon, her brother-in-law and sister are waiting for her on the front porch. They're angry and demanding to know where she's been. Out, Pearl says, just out. She looks to her sister, and both their eyes, there's a pleading, 
a begging for something other than what this is. And then her brother-in-law steps between them and blocks the view. There anything Pearl wants to say? There is only silence. Pearl's sister takes a deep, halting breath. Then Pearl has to pack her bags. There's no room for her here any longer. Pearl's way takes her to Elmira, New York, for a time, where she works as a clerk at a hospital. And then Rochester, where she works at the manufacturing plant of the Art and Buttons Company. She meets James O'Dell on a streetcar one evening. He takes the vacant seat next to her and strikes up a conversation. They agree to a date on his way out at his stop. And the next evening, their courtship begins. O'Dell looks quite like Neep, but yet again, a more boyish, foppish version of him. He's short, just over five feet, and as many a newspaper will describe of him after his arrest, 120 pounds soaking wet. He has piercing dark green eyes and wears his hair in a combed over part and insists on a wool suit and starched white shirt every day. He's soft-spoken, but his body brims with energy, the lithe fibers of his muscles humming to break free, even while he's sitting still. While Neep had no friends or acquaintances that Pearl can remember, James O'Dell is very much a man about town in Rochester. He's employed at a department store where he sells expensive watches, and he spends his free time in social clubs and private societies. As one newspaper catalogs his busy social calendar, Odell is a mason and an elk and an oddfellow, the independent order of oddfellows, the fraternal order, that is, though he is surely quite odd. He also belongs to the American Legion and plays a saxophone in the noted Legion Band of Rochester. He's a member of the YMCA. He's also a Navy veteran. And when they first meet, he's almost like a transformed neep to Pearl, a version of the man she once thought she loved, now at last lovable. Their courtship is short. Odell proposes on a park bench with the ring he bought with his employee discount. When he slides on the ring, Pearl's finger is slick with a nervous sweat. She mutters a soft yes when Odell asks her to marry him. I I thought you'd be a little more excited than this. I am. I am, Pearl says. It's just that, it's just... Odell leans in close and wraps Pearl in his arms. It is okay. You can tell me anything. Pearl goes quiet for a moment. Odell nudges her with his hand and draws her in closer with his arm, holding her tight in an almost vice grip. I have a past, Pearl says. A history. There was another once. I knew him for a while, and then he... Will he... I don't care about any of that, Odell says. As long as I have you to myself, I don't care about any of that. As long as you belong to me, it doesn't matter. So they tie the knot the next week at the courthouse. They move into a small red house together. There, they begin to speak of the future, of kids one day, and then a bigger house and a lawn when they need more room. For several months, it's peaceful, a loving marriage, and a brief calm in the tumultuous life of Pearl O'Dell. But four months into their marriage... Pearl O'Dell begins to sense a lurking figure on her way to and from work, an immaterial, ghostly presence in her midst that makes her blood run and her heart pace. She looks around nervously in the streetcar, into alleys when she passes by. She tries to catch a glimpse of someone following her on the reflections of windows. 
Sometimes she thinks there's a man in the distance, watching and following. But more often than not, the figures she thinks might be following her go about their day and pay her no mind. She listens carefully for footsteps, for someone looking her way just a little too long on the sidewalk or in the streetcar. In the late fall of 1919, Pearl O'Dell steps off the streetcar and walks the final few blocks to the home she shares with James O'Dell. There's a little bit of frost on the ground. It's a little slippery. And she hears the crunch of the frozen leaves breaking under each of her steps. She rounds a corner and sees the warm lights of her home and her husband reading the paper through the large windows of the front sitting room. When she stops along the small gate at their fence, a man appears and suddenly grabs her by the elbow. Pearl, he says, I have missed you so much. It's Edward Neep, standing there with a twisted smile across his face. Her resistance is futile, and he pulls her into an embrace. He won't let her go, and her voice is muffled in Neep's coat. She panics, but then after a moment, he releases her and stuffs an envelope in her lapel before walking away. She rushes into the house, fumbling with the front door, and scurries past James. Who was that? She hears him calling after her. Pearl, who was that? She bounds up the stairs and into the bathroom above. She locks the door and falls to the linoleum tiles on the floor. Pearl holds the envelope in her hand, and she's terrified. Her arteries trying their best to burst out of her neck while her hands have gone clammy. Odell's knocking on the bathroom door now. First gently, then pounding so hard the whole house seems to shake. He's shouting now, demanding to know who that guy was outside. They seemed awfully familiar. Pearl tears at the envelope and pulls out a handwritten letter. The door is starting to splinter and time is running out. She reads it. Meet me, Saturday night. If you don't, I will tell your husband all. Everything. I want you again. Eddie. She starts tearing the note into a million pieces to destroy her past before it can take over her present. But Odell rips it from her hand and reads it. One look, and the letter is fluttering to the floor. Odell is gone, locking himself in the bedroom where he spends the night alone. From that day forward, their marriage falters and descends into chaotic tension. No matter how much Pearl implores Odell that Neep means nothing to her, and in fact that she hates him with all of her heart, Odell does not believe her. He becomes consumed with jealousy and an obsession with her romantic and physical past. He began calling me his secondhand wife, Pearl remembers. He treated me like I was nothing, that I no longer meant anything to him. Even though Pearl had tried to tell Odell of her past with me before marriage, he denies it and tries to force her to admit that she never told him anything. Odell begins to drink at night, Sazerac after Sazerac in the parlor, and when the rye and absinthe have coated his insides and numbed his brain, he falls into a heap on the floor and weeps until he falls asleep. Odell can't explain it, and Pearl does not understand it, but something about the sudden appearance of Neep in their life, the way he invaded their space and forced Odell to confront that his wife had a life before she met him, triggers the worst of his anxieties and fears. He feels embarrassed, like everyone on the street is mocking him when he passes. Every time I walk down the street, Odell will later tell a reporter, I would imagine people would look at me and sneer. I imagine they would say to themselves, 
Hotel, you needn't hold your head up so high. Your wife has been out with other fellows before. In a rare moment of Odell's sobriety and cognizance, Pearl sits him down and tells him everything about Neep. You're going to listen, she tells her husband. You're not going to say a thing until I finish telling you what you need to know. She tells him of Neep's courtship of her, of the love they briefly shared, and then how everything was shattered that night with the chocolates, and how Neep's betrayal and violation of her left her alone and afraid, and like she meant nothing to anyone. Nothing, that is, until she met Odell and fell in love again. And then Neep had to come and destroy everything once more, just as he had done a couple years before. When James O'Dell pretends to be Detective Arnold of the Rochester Police Department and arrests Neep at his workplace, he's a man consumed by jealousy and obsession and a homicidal rage for the man who hurt his wife. He's not entirely sure what he'll do with Neep either. It's a half-hearted plan fueled by the emotions of the past few weeks, cooked up haphazardly late one night. When he speaks with the foreman, O'Dell can't believe his act works. There's no question of his authority, and he's led straight to Neep. When Odell sees Neep in the break room, it's the first time he's seen him up close. Odell expected something different. Someone more, he doesn't know, menacing looking? And not someone who looks so eerily close to himself. He locks the handcuffs on extra tight, satisfied when Neep grimaces. The charge? Neep is being arrested for assault. Odell leads Neep to the car waiting outside. He forces him into the back seat, and there, waiting for Eddie, is Pearl. They first bring Neep to their home. They keep him handcuffed and tie his legs to a chair. They want to extract a confession, an admission of Neep's guilt and what he did to Pearl. Neep refuses, even when they start to rough him up with slaps and punches. I'm not admitting to anything, Neep says through a fat lip. I didn't do anything wrong. They decide their plan isn't working. They need to up the stakes. They need Neep to feel the significance of his wrongdoings, to feel as scared as Pearl once did, to feel the shame Odell feels. Odell comes up with a plan. They'll take their captive somewhere outside, somewhere isolated, somewhere he won't feel safe at all. They pack him back into the car and start to drive out of town, but they don't make it very far, just a couple blocks. The car breaks down. Odell can't get it started again. And when Neep laughs, He feels emasculated all over again. It sends him into a rage, and he strikes Neep hard with a closed fist, and then again, and again, and again. Pearl and Odell, and maybe their biggest mistake, decide to continue and not return home. They drag Neep from the car. On the way out, Pearl grabs a large iron file from the trunk and puts it into her coat. They stand there together in the winter cold, their breaths hanging heavy in the air, potential witnesses driving by oblivious to the pleading in Neep's eyes. They hail a taxi to pick them up. When the cab driver stops, he does not like what he sees at all. A bloodied man in handcuffs, another man claiming to be a detective, but he looks more like a young boy scout, a woman who appears both terrified and committed to something terrible, The cab driver agrees to the ride, but he picks up a friend a couple blocks away, afraid that he might see something criminal, and insists that the friend ride with them. Bizarrely, Odell and Pearl agree. 
and the cab driver and his friend will later prove to be two of the most important witnesses in the case. Odell directs the cab to the outskirts of town. When the cab driver reminds him that the nearest police station is in the other direction, in case, you know, they want to bring in the man they've arrested, Odell waves him off. He says they're heading to the chief inspector's home, and he lives way out of town, where it's safer. They pass the familiar site of the Ballantyne Bridge. On the other side, Odell tells the cab driver to stop. This'll do, he says. We can walk the rest of the way. When Pearl and Odell yank Neat from the cab, he looks to the rearview mirror, hoping to catch the eyes of the cab driver and pleads silently, but the driver is not looking. Pearl and Odell push Neep down a culvert. When he trips and falls to the snowy ground, Odell picks him up and shoves him forward, sending Neep into a stumbling slide down the hill. There, they'll briefly uncuff Neep, and just for a moment, his heart swells with the hope that they might just let him go. He is wrong. They wrap his arms around a tree and then cuff his wrists together again. Pearl pulls the iron file from her coat. Her hands quiver, and the file starts to slip. She tightens her grip and holds fast to the tool. Pearl, she will later report Odell said to her, if this man ever did anything wrong to you, you go ahead and do what you want with him. She takes a step toward Neep. He looks to the file in her hand, and he begins to weep. He pleads. The tears and phlegm choke him up, and he spits out his petitions for mercy. Not like this. He can't go out like this. Not like some dog tied to a tree, please. In a matter of hours, Edward Neep will be dead. And his lifeless body, stripped down to his underwear, will be left hunched over and groveling to a world gone silent in the cold night. And in less than 48 hours, James O'Dell and Pearl O'Dell will be arrested and charged for his murder. They leave behind not just a trail, but a whole deluge of evidence for investigators. Neep's employer calls the police to inquire what's happened. That's when they learn that he was kidnapped by a man impersonating a police officer. Neighbors will later place Neep being forced into the Odell home, and the cab driver and his friend will retrace their steps to the culvert, where the body had been seen by the train brakeman. When the police arrive at the Odell home, they find Pearl alone and a pile of bloody clothes in the bedroom. She's arrested quietly and without incident. When James Odell arrives in the evening, his neighbors inform him that his wife has been arrested. In a panic, he runs straight to the police station where he is arrested as well. That evening, the police extract confessions from both Pearl and James. From what the police can gather in their separate interviews, Pearl struck the first blow. She beat him over the head with the iron file until he lost consciousness. She stabbed him repeatedly with a penknife. After uncuffing the unconscious Neat from the tree and tossing him to the ground, Pearl and James began to walk away. But for some reason, James went back to check on him. Neep somehow regained consciousness, and the two men wrestled. And when James threw him to the ground, he struck his head on a rock and lost consciousness once more. He never woke up. Both James and Pearl will claim that the murder was not pre-planned, that they had simply meant to perform a citizen's arrest and turn him over to the police. But they both claim things got out of hand in the culvert. Neither police nor the grand jury believed them. 
the level of planning involved in Neep's abduction, buying the handcuffs ahead of time, impersonating an officer, and grabbing the file before hailing a taxi, suggest every detail was premeditated. The prosecutors, judge, and grand jury do not believe that the murder was an accident. And in January of 1920, the couple is indicted on murder charges. The separate trials of Pearl and James O'Dell are a national sensation. Just about every newspaper from New York to San Francisco runs headlines on the brutal slaying of Edward Neep and the honeymoon murder, as they call it. For her part, Pearl seems almost relieved after she's charged, as if a great weight has been lifted from her shoulders. She gives an interview to reporters from her cell, lounging in her prison cot with her feet resting on the bars. She feels regret for the murder, but no sorrow for Neep himself. He would have made a woman of the streets out of me, she tells reporters. He, quote, sought to drag her down to the lowest depths of infamy, despite her efforts to escape his attentions. She had no choice but to take matters into her own hands and seek justice on her own. The murder was an unfortunate outcome of it all. James, however, becomes unhinged awaiting trial. His obsession with his wife's past and the murder began to drive him mad. He paces and strides constantly from one end of his small cell to the other. He tells a reporter that he just couldn't handle Pearl's history with Neep, and something inside of him broke. Pearl, James claims, quote, said she was going to be a good girl, and I forgave her, but I kept brooding over what had happened to her. It was on my mind all the time. It kept me awake nights. The thought some other man had wronged her... Odell claims he's not a bad man. He was just driven to do a bad thing. The state buys none of it. They pursue the death penalty for both Pearl and James Odell, insisting, in the words of the prosecuting attorney, quote, that the brutality of their crime invalidates any plea for mercy. James' defense centers on a case of temporary insanity. He was not in his right mind, his lawyers argue. From the time Neat burst into their lives and until the murder, and thus, he cannot be held criminally liable for anything that happened. Pearl's case will center on positioning her as the victim in the whole ordeal. She had been assaulted previously by Neep, and her husband, in his jealous rage, forced her to go along with the plan. Pearl also offers up a last second plot twist to the proceedings. When she's arrested and charged, she announces that she is pregnant. She's several months along, and she had not yet told James or anyone else. But when the state announces they will pursue the death penalty, she makes her pregnancy public knowledge. It's when Pearl announces her pregnancy that the case, in many ways, becomes a referendum on the modern women and the changing social mores in the United States. Pundits and so-called experts across the country begin to offer up Pearl as an example of the violent ends that will surely arise should women be given equal rights to men. Or, as Dr. John D. Quackenbose tells one newspaper covering the case, women are living the lives of men, and it is not surprising that being the mental equals of men, they are becoming equally skillful criminals. It's absurd, of course, to link something like the suffrage movement or increased civil rights to Edward Neep, an alleged rapist and serial harasser. However, this blame for the movement taking place, this refusal on the part of many to accept equality at any cost, is a burden that Pearl O'Dell is forced to carry into the courtroom. She must argue against it along with her defense case. James O'Dell goes first. His trial begins on April 19, 1920, in a combined attempt to establish temporary insanity 
and that he was simply defending his wife's honor, Odell's lawyers try to build a case for manslaughter and not murder. No one ever planned to kill Edward Neep, they claim. It was just an accident after an attempt to scare him went horribly wrong. The trial is short. It lasts only four days. And on April 23rd, 1920, after just 10 hours of deliberation, the jury finds him guilty of first-degree murder. He's sentenced to die by the electric chair. Several weeks later, Pearl's trial begins, and hers is a public event from the first day. The public jeers by the entrance. As one newspaper describes her entering the first day of the trial, the, quote, young woman carries her head high as a whispered wave of scorn and revulsion sweeps over the courtroom crowd at her appearance. Another newspaper notes, women hiss Pearl O'Dell each time she enters the courtroom. The judge admonishes the room day after day, reminding them of the dignity of the proceedings. But the salacious headlines published every morning, like, woman's malice blamed for honeymoon murder, stir the pot even more. Pearl's lawyers blame James O'Dell. They describe him as an angry, violent alcoholic who could not let go of his obsession with his wife's past, which is not altogether wrong. They cast Pearl in the most sympathetic light in her testimony. When asked if she ever desired to kill Edward Neep after all the terrible things she was forced to endure by him, she states simply, no. She admits to striking him with the file and slashing him with a penknife. But when asked if she ever had the slightest notion that she could or would kill him, she denies that the idea ever entered her mind. To some degree, the case Pearl's lawyers make for her succeeds. On June 2nd, 1920, after seven hours of deliberation by the jury, Pearl O'Dell is convicted on the lesser charge of second-degree murder. Now six months pregnant, she will not face the death penalty. Instead, she's sentenced to 20 years to life in prison. All the while, James O'Dell has been waiting for his execution date and has fully descended into madness. His final days are spent haunted by guilt and visions of the child of his he will never get to meet. When visited by a reporter, James tells the reporter that his daughter is there with them. Looking at me, she is saying, Daddy, it is awfully dark and cold here. I want to grow up like the other children, Daddy. Can't mother and I go home now? He looks to the reporter, who, of course, doesn't hear anything at all. In time, James changes his tune. He admits to the murder, but claims it was ultimately justified. In his last public words, he states that, quote, Life and death belong to the creative power of the universe. No man can give it. No man has the right to take it. Yet, I have helped to take a life. I've not asked for mercy. I've not asked the governor for a stay of sentence. I believe, though, that I was put in this world to champion defenseless women from brute men. And that is what I did in the case of my wife, who was outraged and threatened and besmirched. James O'Dell is executed in the electric chair on April 28, 1921. In prison, Pearl O'Dell gives birth to a baby daughter, whom she names Gloria, on September 12, 1920. Baby Gloria spends the first two years of her life in prison with Pearl, when, according to New York state law, she is then removed from her mother and sent to live with a relative. When Pearl O'Dell and Gloria are separated, the tide of public opinion towards the convicted murderer shifts drastically. In the public eye, Pearl is no longer a criminal mastermind, 
who drove her husband to accompany her in the brutal murder of Edward Neep. She's now a sympathetic figure, a tormented woman torn away from her young child. 10,000 people sign a petition to the governor, begging him to release Pearl so she can be with her daughter. They are unsuccessful, and Pearl and Gloria will be separated for eight years, until Franklin Delano Roosevelt assumes the governorship and commutes Pearl's sentence. He does so, he says, because, quote, the woman who has been caring for Mrs. O'Dell's daughter died recently, and he believes it would be advisable to parole this inmate so that she may take care of her child, who is now 10 years of age. Pearl and Gloria will live the rest of their lives in relative obscurity. From time to time, a reporter will stop by to write a follow-up feature, but the public loses interest, and the tale of the honeymoon murder and its aftermath evaporates. That's for the best, Pearl will later remark, welcoming the anonymity. As for Edward Neep and James O'Dell, there are no eulogies, and they're soon forgotten after their deaths. Their names mostly appear only when rummaging through America's sordid past, there to remind us of the petty tyrants who have tormented so many throughout history. Ultimately, it's a story of tragedy, of lives ruined and lost, of multiple wrongs, and there, at the center of it all, is Pearl O'Dell, victim, avenger, and villain all in one. Scoundrel, History's Forgotten Villains is executive produced by Jason and Carissa Weiser and Colin Thompson. Today's episode was written by Timothy Fosbury. It's produced by DJ Lubell, edited and sound designed by Anton Doty, and mixed and mastered by Matt Sewell. Scoundrel, History's Forgotten Villains is a cast original podcast. Hey everyone, Jason and Carissa here. If you're enjoying Scoundrel, History's Forgotten Villains, we would really appreciate it if you left us a rating and review. Also, we'd love your feedback. Go to castmedia.com slash scoundrelfeedback and answer our survey. Thanks.